0: This morning we are going to look at the chapter 12 of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. Whenever you get to uh, the end of a year like this, you're really between two roads. There's a road that you were just on, 2017, and for... For many of us, that was a really hard year. But for many others, it was an incredibly a great year and enthusiastic and, and so we want to both celebrate and to recognize that for some it was, it was tough. And the next road that is before us is the road 2018. And even if we approach that road with great optimism, it will also have its own shares, uh, uh, share of bumps and turns, and uh, its own problems. But it'll also have its own joys. It'll also have its own triumphs and victories. And so, as we look back and look forward, we're going to ask Paul to help us here to fulfill Christ's mission as we as a community seek to do that. And that's why it's really great to have everybody here, primarily in one service. We also had another service at 8 this morning, and so uh, those of you uh, who traditionally uh, attend the nine fifteen or 11, you're all together, and so it's good to hear it, what I'm going to say all together. And so, because I'm going to have to speak uh, rather fast, and that's for a southerner that's relatively fast. Um, it's a lot of material that I'm going to try to deliver uh, to you. If you would like the notes, so you don't have to sit there with your heads down, just email me, uh, boneal at org and if that's too fast for you, you can email the church and they will forward it to me. And I'll just give you my notes and you can have them. Because there's a lot of information that's going to uh, give us context and where Romans 12 is going to answer some of these issues and questions. So I'm going to read from the 12th chapter of the letter to the Romans. So hear the word of the Lord as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. "...in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil." Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. When Jesus was about to leave the earth, after his resurrection, after his earthly mission to save his people by dying on a cross as in his resurrected form, stands before his disciples and says, All authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. It is God's mission to save His creation. The way that we have tried to, to put a slogan, put a way that was memorable of the mission of God that He invites us into, we say, we seek the renewal of Annapolis as we are being renewed by the gospel. It kind of rolls off the tongue. I'm still committed to that mission. Even though, over the last 11 years, that commitment has waned and wavered. There are times that I thought that we would never see fruit, though we labored. I kind of wondered if the labor that we were making was in vain. To use Paul's quote. But then, renewal comes. Where people's lives are truly being changed. And we're hearing about it. But not just yours, but mine. But not just yours and mine, but people we know outside our church... This past fall, just the three months that we had, the Lord has moved with His Spirit to bring five people who didn't know Christ, who weren't attending churches, come to Christ. We have a lot to celebrate. I can't remember in the last decade five, much less in one semester. And we need to celebrate that because... Even though that's not what we have done, it is what the Spirit has done. He's used us. I I wanted it to happen. I prayed for it. I I preached to that end, but he waited till now, and we've got much to celebrate. A lot of those people were in our student ministries. If you don't know what's going on. In our student ministry right now, you're missing out. Now, that could be simply that that your children have gone past the student ministry and, and you just don't know. But this past fall, we partnered with Young Life at Broadneck, and they're seeing amazing things happen among the kids as they come to Christ, as they hear the gospel that we've been preaching here for more than a decade. It's true also in our college ministry. It's true in our our adult ministries. And if we celebrate anything, it's not the numbers in the pews. It's the fact that the Lord has chosen to bless us with conversions. Because I can tell you, in Presbyterian churches, we don't hear enough of that. And I can't speak to any other denomination The mission has not changed. But the context in which we are doing our mission, the mission of God, has radically changed. But what has changed? In order to, to, to get at that, I have a friend who says that the, the role of the preacher is to explain to the culture, the church, what we believe. And I believe that's true. I just don't believe it's the whole truth. I believe it's also the preacher's responsibility to explain to the church the culture in which we sit. John Stott said it a long time ago when he said the preacher stands between two worlds. The world of belief, the Bible, and the world in which the Bible is proclaimed. And that changes For every generation. And I I think it's important, before we get to the answer, that we understand the context. Because we've already tried to explain ourselves to to a, a context in which they don't understand the words that we're using. They don't understand why we believe what we believe. And a lot of times we're speaking past each other simply because we don't understand the questions. And so we're answering questions of a previous generation as if this generation is asking those questions. One of the things, I'm just going to use two descriptors of our current generation. And the first one is that it is post-Christian the other one is it's postmodern. And I want to explain them to you because I don't want to just throw them around and assume you understand what I'm talking about. Most sociologists, both secular and Christian, have, have described the generation in which we are living in now as post-Christian. I don't mean by that that they're a post-spiritual. I think it's a very spiritual. In fact, I think it's more spiritual than my generation. They're just not looking to the church. And there's reasons for that. Pew put uh, does this particular survey, and they, they have quantified by their survey that 73% of the American adults uh, self-identify as Christian. And before we pat ourselves on the back on that number, when you go down and look at what's behind that number, it's down from just 10 years ago of 80%. And it's further down from 40 years ago of 90%. So, one of the things is that 73% is in decline. The other part of that, this is self-designation, the other part of that is it's older and getting older. That is, when you see who self-identifies as a Christian in the American culture today, it's over 40. It's really over 50. Because... The 20% that self-identify as none or agnostic, these are just adults. They're millennials, by and large, under 30. The vast majority of that generation, which happens to be, by the way, the largest generation in America in history, because they're the children of the boomers, my generation. We used to be the largest generation. Now they are. This is what George Barna said in his book, Second Coming of the Church. He said, Millennials are the first generation in American history in which a majority of those seeking faith behind their spiritual journey uh, to begin their spiritual journey without a faith group other than Christianity. What he's saying is, is that it's a very spiritual generation, but they're not going to church or Christian groups to begin that faith journey. And it's the first one in American history that didn't. They're going to other faiths and other groups, other philosophies to start their pilgrimage. He goes on and says, they will seek spirituality with an openness not seen in decades. And yet, the church has completely gone off their radar. And I would argue they have gone off our radar too. If you are not, if you are a millennial, that is, you're under 30. Please understand, you may not fit all that I am describing here, and that's okay because no generation is monolithic. The other term I wanted to explain that is postmodern. Post-Christian, postmodern. One definition of postmodernism is this. It refers to a worldview that generally assumes there are no absolute transcendent truth or morality. That truth and morality are relative to the community in which one lives. John Burke, in his book, No Perfect People Allowed, I was reading that uh, this fall, tells a story of a conversation that he had. He's a boomer, had his conversation with a millennial, and he was sharing the gospel. He was sharing the claims of Christ, and it went like this. He just finished presenting the gospel, and he got to that point where he, do you want to receive Christ? Do you want to accept these truth claims? And this is what the young man said. He says, I can totally see why you, that makes sense to you. But it's just not for me. And so this John Burke, who wrote this book, says that if it makes sense and it's true, then why not believe? That's such a a boomer approach to evangelism. If if it makes sense, if it's rational and the argument is tight, then how can you refuse it? So this young man says, well, you know, I guess I just don't want to be like you. Ouch! And so John Bar- uh, Burke said he didn't—he didn't not like—he didn't like what I represented, which were the stereotypical Christians that he knows or has heard about. And the truth is, the average person in America knows very little about the church. We think we're the bee's knees, but to the average person, they don't know anything, and what they know is primarily what we're against and not what we are for. In the postmodern world we now live in, you can't separate the message from the messenger. This generation is glad to say that arguments don't convince me. Show me an attractive faith and I might consider it. Otherwise, I'm not interested, no matter how true you say it is. Truth has moved from the realm of merely being rational to being relational. And I think that's great. I think that's great that truth has finally gotten personal. Because isn't it Jesus the one who said, I am the truth? He didn't come and say, I, I have the truth. Follow me and I'll tell you all the truth of the of the cosmos, the secrets of God." He says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. God's not caught off guard by this generation. He's not scared. He's not fearful of the largest generation in American history. Because He knew it would come. And He introduced into this world not merely an aesthetic truth. He brought us a person who is true and is truth. Many have described this generation as cynical and skeptical. The error asked why? How did it get that way? If that's true, I'm not quite sure it's true. But if it is true, John Burke says there's several reasons, and one of them is a loss of trust, particularly in authorities. Besides what we see in politics where it, it just doesn't seem they can get along, but how about the home? You know who the parents of millennials? Boomers. We were the me first generation. We were the, the consumers of the world. And we thought everything was going to be designed for us. Imagine what that taught the people that were in our homes that watched us live. The majority of this generation grew up without both parents in the home at some point in their childhood. Right now, the vast majority of children who are growing up in American homes are growing up in American homes without either mom or dad, and some without both. They are called the latchkey kids. They're called that because often both parents are working. This isn't a don't... Don't have both parents working. Message is just simply it has implications. And often a single parent is raising them. The national survey that is done for the last, every year for the last 40 years, asks this question to find out what people think about the good life. What's necessary for the good life? For the first time in America, since they've been doing this survey, Americans adults have ranked cars ahead of children. ...as what is necessary for a good life. Imagine what that says to this generation. It's also a generation that has been abused... ...and has watched on their television and computers... ...report after report of children being abused. The pain that this generation has felt... ...about the family, their family being ripped apart has come out in the cries of this generation. You might not have heard of Everclear, but they have this song called Father of Mine. It says, the lyrics, "A Father of Mine, tell me where have you been? You know I just closed my eyes. My whole world disappeared. I will never be safe. I will never be the same. I will always be lame. Daddy gave me a name, and then he walked away. They also have a a tremendous high value of tolerance. Tolerance is a horrible substitute for acceptance. So don't hear me say that tolerance is a a good thing. It just is a value. People want to know of this generation that we are not one of those hateful churches that they see. How do you talk about other people's faith matters? Do you describe it in such a way that a person who has that faith would even recognize what you're describing? Is it gracious? You see, they have a high tolerance and they have an intolerance toward hypocrisy and judgment. How do you feel about gay people? You notice the question wasn't, what do you think? Or, do you think it's wrong? They're not asking a moral question. They're asking a relational question. How do you feel? How do you relate? Another one is, how do you treat women? They're very concerned about how women are viewed in the life of the church. And with so much brokenness in their lives, they're looking for peace and unity. We have to recognize it's a a media-shaped culture. I don't mean just simply television. In fact, most of them watch their computer for television, what they see. They've gotten some of the best effective tolerance training in, in human history, and at the same time, they've given an, an incredible negative impression of the church and Christians in particular. There's this episode of The Simpsons," and I'm not asking you to watch the Simpson Simpsons," but I do like this cultural critique. Homer has a neighbor named Maud, and Homer hadn't seen her in a while, and so Homer says, "I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been?" Maud says, "Oh, I've I've been away at Bible camp where I've been learning to be more judgmental." <laughs> and in some sense, we have to recognize the ways in which we have contributed to this impression. It's not just Hollywood having a misunderstanding about Christianity and propagating that image. That caricatures tend to be an exaggeration of the reality in which people see. So, you have to ask, how have we contributed to this characterization of Christianity? I already told you that truth has become personal and relational. is no longer merely propositional and rational. They've also experienced so much brokenness. There's no greater challenge before the church today than for us, this opportunity to minister into the pain of this generation. And when this pain is revealed among us, The only question that they're asking is, will I still be welcomed at EP when you know me? Serious question. There is nothing free about postmodernism. It came with a huge balloon payment in which this generation is paying. One out of three women under the age of 30 in this generation has had an abortion. One out of three women in this generation under the age of 30 have been molested. One out of two will live together before marriage. The majority have viewed pornography and much of them are addicted. One out of ten in that generation will have experienced serious substance abuse. Someone will hear those statistics and they'll say, it's a lost generation i say it's a tremendous opportunity. I'm incredibly optimistic for the gospel in the hearts of these people. Some will say, in order to attract them, you have to adjust your worship style. You have to adjust your orthodoxy. You have to water those kinds of things down. We don't believe that. In fact, your worship style has very little to do with reaching the next generation. There are conservative, formal, traditional churches that are reaching that generation. There are informal, contemporary, at the other end of the extreme that are reaching. It's not about style of worship at all. And it's certainly about orthodoxy. That is, the true gospel that we believe and proclaim here, we don't believe is an impediment. It is the essential framework by which this generation will be reached. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about our community in regard to the mission. Because how we live together, how we worship together, how we go and have presence into the community matters. And the foundation of that is what we believe. Are we a community where skeptical, doubting, questioning, cynical people are welcomed as they are and where they are. Are we a community that provides a safe place for questions and doubts and unbelief. So that they can process the gospel. At their pace. And not ours. You think about how long it took you to understand. Some of just the basics of a gospel. How in the world could we make the expectation. When you walk in the room you got to get this down. And then you can be one of us. That's unrealistic because that's not what happened to us. It was a process. For EP to become this kind of redemptive community, we must all be in. Every one of us are needed, and we have to all be in. We are a multi-generational church, and I don't think that's a weakness. I think that's our strength. I think our strength is the fact that we look like the world. That is, we don't live with just eighteen to thirty-year-olds, with people who are who are in their middle age, and people who are are seasoned. And I think that's a strength of ours. We don't have to sacrifice one generation to reach the next. We think those of you who are older, you're our secret weapon. You're the key. Because they're so much want community. They want this community to be their family. And family has people your age as well as their age. But for that to happen, we all have to be in. All of us. But what would that redemptive community look like? That is, practically speaking. And that's why we turn to Paul, because that's what Paul's going to describe for the Roman church. The type of community that is going to reach them. Paul says at the very beginning, I I want to bring the gospel and preach it to you. Why? They're all Christians. Because he, he sees that the world watches the church. And that you're not just saved as individuals, but you're saved into a community of God's people. So what is that community supposed to look like? How is it supposed to live? How is it supposed to operate? Paul gives us three descriptors. He gives us way more than that, but we only have time for three, and I'm not sure we have time for three. You and I have to all be in for a community being renewed by the gospel. You see that at the very beginning. Verse 1, I appeal to you. This is Paul, an apostle. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. My my translation at the very bottom, brothers and sisters, so, so women don't think he's discounted you. He includes you. What is Paul appealing to? The mercies of God. You see that in verse 1? What are the mercies of God that Paul is talking about here? He's talking about chapters 1 through 11. He said, I just just wrote you a whole treatise on the essence of the gospel. The truth claims orthodoxy. I don't want you to abandon orthodoxy to reach the lost. I want you to use orthodoxy as the foundation for reaching the lost. Let me let me unfold that for you in, in chapters one through three. He says for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, whether you grew up religious, even if it wasn't Christianity, even if it wasn't Judaism, you grew up religious or you were irreligious. You grew up without a faith. You were just spiritual or maybe agnostic or maybe atheistic. But everyone is the same, whether you you had Judaism or you didn't have Judaism, whether you had a religion or you didn't have a religion, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he begins unpacking in in verse 21 of chapter 3 the the essence of the gospel. And he won't stop talking about that until chapter 11. But at the end of chapter 4, he's been talking about justification by faith alone. That it's not your works. And every religion in the world then and every religion in the world now have always said, do this and you'll be okay with God. God will be okay with you. And Paul says, no, Christianity is very different. Because God requires of us a holy life and he knows we have failed at that. Nobody can debate that. I'm going to send someone who's going to live in your place and what he does will be done on your behalf and you're going to get credit for his incredibly holy life. And in order to forgive you, I'm going to take this incredibly perfect holy person and I'm going to I'm going to kill him. Now we know the Jews turned him in. We know the Romans crucified him, but Peter says in Acts uh, 2 that it was God who crucified Christ before the foundation of the world. So if you're looking for someone to ultimately blame for the crucifixion, it is the father because it was the means by which we would be saved to find forgiveness because somebody had to die. And the only way it would have infinite worth is if it was the God man and not just merely a man. And that's what he's setting up all the way to end of chapter four. And beginning in five, he begins to say, this is what this life looks like. This new life in Christ justified by Jesus. And he and he starts in chapter 5 and describes this life all the way to chapter 8 to where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And the rest of chapter 8 is about how the Spirit works in our lives. And then in chapter 9, I love chapter 9. A lot of people want to skip chapter 9 and 10 and 11. But I love it because 9 and 10 start the same way. Paul says, I love my people. And I would rather be damned if they could be saved. And you can imagine that? That you have the opportunity and Paul didn't have the opportunity. It was wishful thinking. Because only Christ could die for man. Man could not die for another man. And so, Paul's wishing that he could. Imagine if if you had the heart that Paul had in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Lord, save Annapolis and let me be damned in the process. I'll trade my eternal destiny with you for the souls of Annapolis. That's what Paul's saying. And he repeats it in chapter 10. And then he says, God has not abandoned his people. That we have been engrafted and he will bring salvation even among those who have rejected him. And then beginning right here. That's the mercies of God in which I'm now going to ask you to live. This is the gospel that renews. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is why I got into the ministry. I didn't get into the ministry to run programs to keep you entertained. I don't know anybody that's in ministry to to be program managers. You know who are the worst administrators? And we get this critique all the time when we uh, get our, our evaluations. We need to be more administrative. Nobody in ministry is ministrative. Because we want to minister to people. We want lives to be transformed. We're not in it to see more people in the pew, but the people that are in the pew, that their lives are changed, including ours. That's why we get into ministry. That's why we're encouraged by this fall. To hear your stories? That's why we got into the ministry and we're so excited that God is moving in our midst. Paul also says back in chapter 1 that this gospel that we're talking about is for believers and unbelievers alike. How do we know that? How does he start out? He says, I'm writing this letter to you. I'm eager to get to town. I've never been there, but when I get there, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Christians, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Don't read justification merely into that word. Paul does not recognize salvation that limited. That is how you become a Christian. For Paul, it is how you grow in Christ. And the ultimate goal in salvation is your holiness that one day you will be completely transformed into the image of Christ without sin. For Paul, he imports all of that into that word salvation. So when he says, I can't wait to get to town, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you, for I'm not ashamed of that gospel, for it's the power of salvation, because he's talking about your continued growth. You don't graduate from the gospel to something else. Paul calls that the meat of the word. I'm tired of you only needing milk. Grow up, but not ever grow past our gospel. What would that community look like if it's being renewed by the gospel? Renewal means we will love God first and we will love God most. Renewal means we will rest and live in the peace of our Heavenly Father. Renewal means we will rest and live in the love of Christ as a people of grace, and we will give grace to others. Renewal means repentance will be normal, often, and welcomed. Amen? So let's start hearing your confessions. And quit hiding. Renewal means we work and pray for the redemption and restoration and reconciliation and we celebrate it when it happens because that is the goal. Renewal means we will rest and live in the ways of the Spirit because the Spirit is pouring God's love into our hearts. Renewal means we will settle for nothing less than a healthy, life-giving community with each other. Renewal means we'll be hospitable and and thoughtful toward our guests. And that means we have to actually recognize when a guest is in the room. Renewal means we will treat our non-Christian friends and neighbors with love and dignity and respect. Renewal means we will give special care to the weak and to the poor. But we're not just going to be all in for renewal. We want to be All in for community experiencing grace. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, based on this gospel that we just talked about for 11 chapters, now based on it, to present your bodies, plural, it's plural in English and it's plural in Greek. As a living sacrifice, it's singular in English and it's singular in the Greek. Holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. What he's saying is all of us are part of a community. We're individual Christians, but we're part of one another. We're all members of the body of Christ. And this presentation of the body of Christ, the local church, EP, is a community. And what we do together is an act of our communal worship. Before our God. And this communal life together. Is marked by grace. Look he says it twice for us. In case we don't get it the first time. For this is verse 34. By the grace given to me. I say to every one among you. Do not think of himself more highly. Than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith. That God has assigned. And in case we missed it. Down in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to what? The grace given to us. Let us use them. And then he goes through the long list of gifts, which is, should tell you that no one has all the gifts. But the church, God has given the church all the gifts. And therefore we need one another. So what will a community experiencing grace look like? In a culture of grace, people feel safe to share their struggles with one another without fear of being rejected or judged. And with the confidence that they will receive help from us. Our church is a big place for big sinners in need of a big Savior. In a culture of grace, mistakes and failures are viewed through the farsighted lens of grace. Do you hear that? Everybody here sins. If that's a surprise to you, when this is over, let's talk. Bring your wife. It's how we see those sins. Do we see them through the far-sighted lens of grace? Or through the short-sighted view of expectations? In a culture of grace, people are encouraged to dream and take risk for the sake of the mission. Rather than for fear of failure. Are you willing to risk for the mission? Wendy Rogers, I hope she's not in here because it will embarrass her. But she has taken a huge risk. She's going down as a middle... Oh, I hope she doesn't hear this. A middle-aged woman. Oh. Down to Annapolis High School. And ministering to 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old girls. And taking the gospel at a huge risk. It may not work. In a culture of grace, people are encouraged to dream and take risk. In a culture of grace, the community values the health of its people over the achievement of a goal. In a a culture of grace, people are encouraged to abandon self-righteousness and self-condemnation. The Bible does talk about both of those things, but it primarily tells us to abandon the self altogether for the sake of Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live it, Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith. That doesn't sound like I'm living either in self-absorption or in self-righteousness. In a culture of grace, obedience to God is a response to God's love for us. It is not a result of fear or guilt, and so we will not guilt you into obedience or make you afraid of the God who sent His Son to die for you, but loves you. In a culture of grace, people assume the best intentions of others unless they prove differently. In a culture of grace, leaders encourage and celebrate lay ministry. i got news for you. If you think the 20 staff can do all the ministry of the church, we misunderstand. We have become consumers. And we're just going to the board and hoping it all works out. You are the ministers of the church. Our job is just to equip you. We can't hire fast enough and enough to do all the things that God is, wants us to do in our community. Therefore, it must be you. Last, and I've already gone too long. But because there's not another service, we can go longer. <laughs> Just pretend you're in an African-American church. We need to all be in for the community having a faithful presence. Paul gives us one more aspect of this kind of community that can meet the challenge to reach the next generation. A kind of community that if if we disappeared, if EP no longer exists in Annapolis, that the people of Annapolis would miss us because we were making a positive influence in our city and our county. The people of our area would be... Flourishing as a result of our presence. And when we left, they were no longer flourishing. And they missed us. A kind of community that leaves their workplaces, their neighborhoods, their clubs, and their schools better than they found them. Look at how Paul describes such a community in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. He's not talking about within the church. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about you rejoicing with each other. That's not the context. Now he's talking about you rejoicing with those outside the church who are rejoicing. And those that are grieving and weeping, that we weep with them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. He's not talking about just the lowly in here, but the lowly that are out there. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. did not that sound like that the community is glad we're here? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Give him something to drink if he's thirsty. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. That is, you get his attention by meeting his need. Don't overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Doesn't that remind you of Jeremiah 29? If you don't know the context of that, Jeremiah is a prophet. He's writing a letter on behalf of God to... The Jews who have been abandoning the gospel and abandoning the mission. And God says, as a result, I'm going to show you your mission. I'm going to plant you in the most godless culture on the face of the planet called Babylon. And you're going to live there for 70 years. Now, he doesn't tell them 70 years. He just says for a while. And and I, and you're going to go, I'm going to show you evangelism 101. I'm going to show you community 101. They failed that. They they refused to marry. They refused to have children. They refused to get involved in the place they sent. They refused the mission. And so, Jeremiah sends them a letter. And Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you too will find welfare. That word welfare is a derivative of the word shalom. Peace. Wholeness. What would a community like that look like? That has a faithful presence right here in Annapolis and beyond. A faithful presence seeks the peace and prosperity of Annapolis. And from Annapolis, the whole world. A faithful presence seeks to be good neighbors in every place, inside and outside our homes. A faithful present treats... The workplace is a significant and strategic realm for discipleship and the mission. A faithful presence sees the effects of the fall and seeks to undo them. A faithful presence seeks justice for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. A faithful presence works for the renewal of broken neighborhoods and institutions. A faithful presence resists greed and encourages simple, generous living. A faithful presence manages and shares the resources God entrusts to us responsibly and faithfully. God has so richly blessed our church. Not just this year, but for 54 years. And to whom He has given much, He will require much. It is not about EP. It is about the kingdom of God coming. That's what we pray. Our Father who art in heaven... How it be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. Just one last question and then I'll promise to let you go. And please, if you have children in the nursery, they're going to blame me. So if you will go and get them and then come back for fellowship, they will really appreciate it. We've been talking about these things for more than a decade. We have prayed that God would do this in our midst? We have even worked, I'm talking about elders, deacons, staff, members of the congregation. We want to be that kind of community that's renewed by the gospel. We want to be the kind of community that uh, experiences grace and we want to be the community that has a faithful presence. Will you commit to be all in? Whatever that means for you. Will you, will you make that commitment? Because 2018 could be radically different than 2017 if we're all in. If half of us are in and half of us are out, then it'll probably be the same. It's going to take all of us. And more than all of us. Because if this is going to ever happen, where it's not an aberration to have a few people come to Christ, but loads... And that people be in this room that don't look like us, don't act like us, don't think like us, that are processing the gospel. For that to happen, it's going to have to be a work of the Spirit. And that will require you to pray for so. Work to that end. And see it happen. And then we get just to revel in it. We get to take a bath in it. We get to be saturated in that. And then who cares? Who's up front? Who cares who's ushering? Who cares about those things? When we're here to see lives changed, beginning with ours, beginning with the preacher, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these dear saints. I love them, but more importantly, you love them. And you so much want to change our lives. Into the image of Christ. You're doing that by degree. We're asking you to do it by greater degree. Move your spirit in our hearts. Move your spirit in our church. Move your spirit in our city. And move your spirit in this world. And to this end, we are all in. Just tell us. What we can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.